Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 216. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's the final week of Lovecraft Tribute Month, and we've got a great story for you by Mike Resnick. But before we get to that, part five of our six-part cryptozoological nature documentary series, In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear, with everyone's favorite oddly-accented field reporter, Connor Chodesworth. In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear, with Connor Chodesworth. Previously, on In Search of the Brain-Eating Nondi Bear. A trap has been set to capture one of the beasts. We decided the simpler, the better, and settled on an old industry favourite. The Tar Baby. No Nondi would be able to resist. They would forthwith become stuck in the sensual substance, and simple as that, we'd have our first documented subject to observe. The more creative locals had drafted plans and constructed an intricate Rube Goldberg device involving an overly complex hatch in the ground and some bird that would punch in a repeated coded number sequence with buttons that needed to be pressed to reset some timer, all sorts of... Imagine a large-scale communal research compound where scientists could work to understand the unique electromagnetic fluctuations emanating from this sector. There was an incident. They say that a dark spirit inhabits the jungle in times such as these. A mysterious cat-like creature which speaks in riddles through a floating set of teeth and eyes. Think about it. A group of them? What if there's a group of them? We've only got one tar baby. That's only enough for one single nondi. For God's sakes, man, what if they come at us in a, a clutch or a, a gaggle or whatever? Dear God, they're everywhere. Like a swarm of monstrous smoke. It's the ethereal cat spirit that speaks only in riddles. Yes. The tar baby. That's no tar baby. It's... It's... Our producer? Hank? Ah, seriously. What the hell is up with all these flashbacks? Trippier than smoking pot with a penguin named... Hey, hey, penguin dude. What what was your name? Wait, where'd he... Where'd he waddle off to? Taint Hammer, the large matronly African-American women of this continent must be outsourcing their mm childs to India with the amount of silly drivel that constantly pours from your mouth. <clears throat> we just call them African women here, Chodesworth. Well, that's silly. How do you distinguish the large matronly ones? No, I mean... Anaishi katika nchia, Kenya. Oh, I know you're not American, my dear. That doesn't stop me from loving you or the president any less. Moo! Moo! Oh, yes, Hank. Let's get you down from that sticky tar baby, buddy. Oh, look at him. Poor guy. All covered in tar. Drawn to those weird-ass boob balloons like the Kool-Aid man to a load-bearing wall. My... Hank, what big eyes you have. What big teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, put me in a group of bears and call me a shoal. Chodesworth's passed out cold. Sheesh, well, don't everyone jump to help at once. <coughs> uh, dear Lord, what just happened? You fainted, Chodesworth. Fell into a deep sleep. Oh, sleep? I'll sleep when I'm dead. And tonight, probably. Oh, what, what day is it? I believe it's World Malaria Day. Hmm, but what to get the mosquito that has everything? But I, I was just... Wait, where did your crazy little tar-covered moo-cow friend go? <gasps> Hank! I said wait! <clears throat> As I was saying, where did your crazy little tar-covered moo-cow friend go? It's... it's the ethereal cat ghost. I remember now, when I... when I reached out and touched one of Hank's rubber boobs, my hand... The tar. I couldn't let go. I squeezed, and the more I squeezed, the more these these strange memories and thoughts began to deflate into my mind. That wasn't Hank at all. It was some bizarre simulacrum. It was the Cheshire Smoke Cat Monster, which speaks only in riddles. Suddenly, I was in the past, on our airplane again before it crashed. Make sure to use the call security and pass it. At this time, I ask that all portable electronic devices be turned off. Thank you. But I wouldn't. I, I couldn't turn it off. Sir? Sir? Balls. Balls. It was my fault. I crashed the plane. Sweet baby Xenu, that dumb frickin' rule about portable electronic devices. If I'd only listened... Then I was watching the three of us, Jeff, Hank, and I, wash up on the beach. And then I saw it. Hank was the first of us to wake, and there it was, the smiling cat ghost. Only it wasn't the cat ghost at all. It was Hank's wife, Sarah, calling to him. Why is Sarah calling you? Because she was afraid, Dad. For you. The vaporous cat creature tried to take him as a host. But Hank's mind couldn't bear the burden, and the creature became angry. And it drove him mad. Chodesworth, this is beyond preposterous. For God's sake, man, that's like paleoposterous. No, wait. Let me explain. Okay. Go right ahead. I said wait. <clears throat> As I was saying... The floating smoke cat takes the form of that which we love and cherish most in order to seduce us and steal us away from our very selves. Taint Hammer, the entity is looking for a new host to inhabit. You know what I think, Chordsworth? I think you're full of crap. You know, Taint Hammer, there was a time when I thought that same thing about number two pencils. I wouldn't go near them for the longest time, but I mean, why would anybody want to use those? Poo finger or something. Turns out, just lead. Just lead up in there like any other pencil. You've got to believe me. Okay, then where is this cat ghost now? Well, plop my ass in gin and call it a badonkatini. It's. it's fing Bet Midler. Why, why she's even more mesmerizing in person. No, Chodesworth, back away from Bette Midler. 
you'll contract mad cow disease. What the? Bette Midler, she's transforming into what appears to be a hyena. But bigger. About the size of a lion. Or lion-sized hyena. Why, it's glorious. It's a magnificent white Nandi bear bounding majestically through the air. A magical bear. I must have it. No, Chodzvat, it's not a real bear. White bears, they cannot jump. Yes, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm fighting it. Taint Hammer, the beast appears to be looking at you now. It will soon become something that you truly desire. You must fight it, no matter what it is. Amina amejifunika kanga kichwani. Erika? <gasps> Taint Hammer, why you skeezy little... Wait, Chodzvat, I can explain. I said wait. I was. Ah, yes. Well, clearly I've been secretly in love with Erica the entire time, and thusly the shape-shifting Schmoke Midler has chosen that particular form in order to tempt me, effectively blowing my cover in the process. But, but... But why would I choose a fake imitation Erica, you ask? When I could have the real Erica right here, all to my own? Ha-ha! <laughs> Taint Hammer, put her down. Don't worry, Chodsworth. I'll let you have the number two Erica over there. The one filled with dookie. No, Erica, where are you? I, I can't see through this swirling smoke. Tang Tama. All's fair in love and cryptozoology, Chodsworth. Avita Zane. <laughs> Wait, no, where are you taking her? Erica! Will Connor find his lady friend? Will Taint Hammer find his penguin? Will anyone find a bear that eats brains? Tune in next week for the large and matronly conclusion to In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear. For now, though, it's 100 Word Story Time. This week's Drabble comes to us from Evan Quinlan, and it's called My Secret Co-Author. Evan lives and drabbles in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Check out more of his short stories at drabbleshire.org. This week, a book made the New York Times bestseller list. I'd call it my book, but that would feel dishonest. I wrote the words, yes, but I cannot remember writing the notes from which I worked. I find outlines, extensive ones, scrawled in my own handwriting on paper scraps or my bedroom wall. Brilliant stuff. But among the plot twists and story arcs, I find messages. Bury it, one reads. Hidden beneath the straw, says another. Pray, advises a third. Needless to say, I enjoy the fruits of my royalties from my home and no longer venture into the barn. What kind of Lovecraft tribute month would it be without a few moldering manuscripts, huh? Always with the moldering. Lovecraft would find a way to molder the Kindle editions of a manuscript. Why? Because that's how you learn arcane secrets that eventually drive you to hurl yourself out the seventh floor window. 
Our story this week, The Book of Eternity by Mike Resnick. Mike is, according to Locus, the all-time leading award winner, living or dead, for short science fiction. He's won five Hugos, with a record 34 nominations, a Nebula, and other major awards in the USA, France, Japan, Poland, Croatia, and Spain. He's the author of 62 novels, 250 short stories, and two screenplays, and the editor of 40-plus anthologies. Visit him at MikeResnick.com. All right, so without further ado, we bring you The Book of Eternity by Mike Resnick. His name was Marvin Castlemeyer, though he changed it to Marcus Magnus because he thought it sounded more impressive. He'd been a bright student, solitary and humorless, with no friends and a single obsession. He wanted to live forever. A lot of us share that obsession for a day or a week or even a month, but eventually we outgrow it. Marvin never did. As a child, he'd been given to understand that if you led a good and blameless life, when you died, every last shred of you would vanish, and you would once again become a tiny part of the heavenly host. Most people found that comforting. Marvin, who cherished his individuality, found it appalling. He was enrolled in a religious college, the denomination doesn't matter, not at this late date, and was expelled for writing his term paper on the science of alchemy. It was then that he began his life's work. It is accepted wisdom that when you're born, you live and you die. But Marvin didn't accept it. He knew he couldn't be the first man who wanted to remain uniquely himself forever, and he therefore concluded with absolute conviction that there had to be a secret, spelled with a capital S, that would let him live forever. He was determined to discover it. Despite his expulsion from school, well, from two schools, actually. They found him sacrificing newts, salamanders, and even a puppy to various gods and demons in his dorm room at the second school and sent him packing. He was a studious young man, at least until he became a studious, middle-aged man, and eventually a studious and increasingly desperate old man, unable to walk without pain, possessed of failing vision, failing hearing, and a failing heart, but also of an absolute certitude that he could beat his pending death. He had spent his last 60 years in single-minded pursuit of the secret. He had poured over every page, every word of the Malleus Maleficarum and the Compendium Maleficarum, and he'd committed every spell in Ravenheart's grimoire to memory. He'd spent six years of his life in pursuit of the Pseudo-Monarchia Demonium, which was said to have been written by Lucifage Rofakal himself or perhaps itself, for Lucifage Rofakal was supposedly the chief demon of hell. Marvin uttered every spell and made every sacrifice that these sacred or accursed texts demanded, and yet he knew somehow that he'd not yet hit upon the key, the secret to life eternal. He journeyed to Africa, entered forbidden lands, and spoke in secret conclave to the most feared witch doctors of the Dark Continent, stood side by side with them during obscene ceremonies that invoked the most frightening spirits imaginable, and though when all was done they assured him he was now immortal, he knew that he wasn't, and that he dare not put their pronouncement to the test. 
He observed nameless rites in the lost Mayan and Incan cities of South America, even performed the hideous sacrifices demanded by the Egyptian Book of Shadows, and waited for a sign, an indication that he'd crossed the threshold to immortality. But none was forthcoming. He became so desperate that he spent half his fortune buying nine copies of the dreaded Ars Goetica, which is said to have been inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon. Each copy was sold secretly in shadows and back alleys for exorbitant prices, and each proved to be a forgery. He finally concluded that no true copy still existed. And as the sands of time began running out on Marvin's life, he became more and more desperate to turn the hourglass over, to extend that life for all eternity. He felt cheated that he hadn't accomplished it yet. After all, he'd forsaken the pleasures of a wife and family, not that he would have experienced any pleasure in marriage or parenthood. He had worked at menial jobs until he realized that he was meant for better things and turned to the twin occupations of theft and fraud, and he'd remained true to his quest. When the high priest of a voodoo sect just outside Port-au-Prince handed him the sacrificial dagger and told him to slice the throat of the mesmerized young girl on the altar, he never hesitated, but did what was required. When he had to participate in an Asian ceremony so repugnant that he kept his eyes closed for most of it, he nonetheless performed the task at hand. He had a bad scare on his 72nd birthday, a heart tremor that put him in the hospital for a week, where he gave the staff an even bigger scare. They asked him if he had a religious preference, and he replied that he did. They doubtless expected him to state that he was Jewish or some denomination of Christian, so they would know whether to send a rabbi, a priest, or a minister to comfort him. They weren't prepared for him to state, coldly and rationally, that he would pay any price, commit any sin, perform any ancient and obscene rite, and sell his loyalty and devotion to whoever could keep him from the grave. Before they could decide what kind of counseling to give him, he got up off his bed, put his clothes on, and left the hospital. He knew his time was running out, and that in all likelihood he had only one chance left to find the elusive key to eternal life. He went back to his two-room apartment and began poring through the dozens of notebooks he'd kept during his lifetime, all the leads he'd followed, all the ceremonies he'd witnessed, all the disappointments he'd suffered. And then he saw the first reference. It was just a mention in passing, scribbled 53 years ago to a mystic grimoire called The Book of Eternity. He'd been unable to find any further information and assumed it was apocryphal. Then, 19 years later, the book was mentioned again in the works of the French mystic Jean-Claude Nicot. Again, he'd tried to find out more about it, and again, he'd been stymied. He thought he'd actually tracked down a copy 22 years ago in a dusty little bookshop in Bratislava, but it turned out to be merely a translation of the Corpus Hermeticum. Then, just as he was sure that the original reference to the Book of Eternity was wrong, he came across the title again in the Triquetra Grimoire. At the time, he was still hunting for a number of books and visiting strange men with stranger powers, and once again it slipped just past the edge of his consciousness. But now it became his sole focus of attention. He had tracked down every other grimoire, visited every mage and mystic, had participated in every dark and blasphemous ceremony, and he was dying. 
The Book of Eternity was his last chance, his only chance to cheat the Grim Reaper, to no longer live from day to day, but from millennium to millennium. He tried the shop of secret knowledge, an obscure bookstore in a back alley of Casablanca, but they had never seen a copy. He had a friend bribe a friend who bribed another friend who had access to the Vatican's library of forbidden books, but it wasn't there. He advertised in every literary journal as well as every journal devoted to the supernatural and posted large rewards for it on the internet. And you know where he finally found it? A second-hand bookstore in Tulsa that specialized in paperback romance novels. They saw one of his ads or postings and contacted him. He couldn't wait for them to mail it. Instead, he bought plane fare and flew there to pick it up. When he returned to his hotel room, he sat down at his desk. There was an overstuffed recliner in a corner by the window, but he wanted to remain alert, and he began going through the thin, incredibly old volume, page by page and word by word. And what he found was half the answer he sought. Yes, he could survive for all eternity, but he could not live for eternity. He would die like all other men, but if he uttered the right prayers and spells at the moment of his death, at least he would not become one with the angels, losing his identity to become part of the heavenly host, but would remain clearly and identifiably Marcus Magnus. Well, Marvin Castlemeyer. It wasn't quite what he'd hoped for, but after six decades of intensive, single-minded searching, it was the only answer he'd come up with, the only way of assuring he'd retained that which made him unique among all humanity. The night he bought it, he sat alone in a cheap hotel room in Tulsa, poring over the spells, memorizing the chants, preparing himself for the moment of transition. He was about to take the poison that would end his life when he realized, to his chagrin, that even though he knew this was the path to eternity, he somehow could not muster the courage to swallow it. But he knew someone with an abundance of courage, the mage of a secret sect in Mississippi. He wired him the money to fly to Tulsa and do what must be done. He was prepared to pay his final few thousand dollars since he would have no need for money, but the mage shook his head. I will do this for you, he said, but my fee is the book of eternity. I tell you now that I will accept nothing else. Freely given, agreed Marvin. Have you considered the voyage upon which you are embarking? Asked the mage. Eternity is a long time. I have considered nothing but, replied Marvin. The mage shrugged. Then let us proceed. The mage chanted the proper spells, prayers, and curses. Marvin was prepared to drink the poison, even have it poured down his throat, but instead the mage withdrew a sacrificial dagger and slashed his wrists. Thank you, my friend, whispered Marvin as the life drained away into the bowl the mage held beneath his wrists. Thank you. Thank you for the book, answered the mage and no friend would send you where I'm sending you. Marvin was overcome then by dizziness, a weakness from the loss of blood, but though he was dying, he was undismayed, for he knew that the Book of Eternity had opened a very special door, one through which only the smallest handful of men had passed since men first walked the earth. Welcome to my domain. 
said a smooth, cultured voice from behind him. Marvin whirled around and found himself confronting the popular conception of a devil. He stood six feet tall, his body well built, and he possessed horns and a tail. His toes ended in claws, he wore nothing but a loincloth, and he held a trident in one hand. I am... began the demon, but Marvin interrupted him. I know, said Marvin. You are Lucifer Drophacal. You are well versed, Marcus Magnus, said the demon. Marvin smiled happily. You are the first person who ever called me that. I am glad it pleases you. I'm sure everything will please me, said Marvin. He'd stretched his arms and admired his unscarred wrists. I have even been allowed to keep my own body. A better, healthier version of it, noted Lucifer Drophacal. The heart palpitations are gone, as are the pains in your legs. Your vision is what it was at age 20. So it is, exclaimed Marvin. I hadn't even noticed. And now, to business, said the demon. Do you like your restored body? Oh yes, said Marvin. And would you like to keep it for all eternity? All eternity, repeated Marvin dreamily. Yes, yes I would. Then pledge to serve me for all eternity, and you shall have it. I so pledge, said Marvin. He studied the demon. You look more like the traditional notion of a demon than I had anticipated. I, I expected something much more frightening. Did you really? Marvin nodded. Uh, yes. Well, I would hate to disappoint you, said Lucifer Drophacal. This is merely the body I wear to greet new arrivals. Suddenly he began morphing into something huge, something more hideous than any human had or could imagine. And this, boomed the monstrous voice, is who and what I truly am. Standing before Marvin, towering over him, was a reddish creature with a dozen limbs and tentacles, and mouths filled with razor-sharp teeth at the end of each. It bore wings the size of a jet plane, sturdy legs like tree trunks, and four blazing eyes that moved independently of each other. The creature had a single head, and as Marvin stood atop a small, flat rock, transfixed, wanting to run away but unable to move, Lucifer Drophacal lifted him up and bit off his left arm. Marvin shrieked in agony while the demon chewed noisily. Why? screamed Marvin. I thought... You pledged to serve me, answered Lucifer Drophacal, gulping down the last of his arm and smiling. Now you are learning what service means. I have many mouths and many stomachs, and they all need to be fed constantly. Your body will feel the pain of a living body, but since you are in my domain, where natural law is subservient to my law, your body will regenerate whatever I eat, if not instantly, at least before my next meal. A tentacle shot out. Marvin tried to duck, but he found that he could not move or even scream his agony. The mouth at the end of the tentacle closed around his ear, bit it off, and began chewing it inches from Marvin's face. He should have fainted from the pain, but somehow he knew that he would not lose consciousness ever again. 
I shall return soon. Promised Lucifer Drofakal, turning and floating away. And hungry. Marvin could already feel his missing arm starting to grow back quickly and painfully. His ear would be next, and when he was whole, or nearly so, Lucifer Drofakal would be back to dine again, possibly alone, possibly with some demonic friends. Marvin thought back to the mage's words. Eternity is a long time. And suddenly he knew with a dull certainty that he would be around to know exactly how long it was. things, huh? I think podcasts are still pretty safe, though. Just be careful if you ever stumble upon one called the Necronomicast or something. So, hey, you know the drill. If you enjoyed this week's show, hit up Drabblecast.org and send a donation our way. Remember, all the stories this month were originals commissioned by the Drabblecast. Help a podcast out. We really appreciate your support. All right, and to close out Lovecraft Month, we've got a great 100-character story this week, winner of our weekly ongoing Twitfic Twabble contest, a story by Tesseract. Here goes. As children flock to their deranged god, his great purple lips flap open. I love you, and you love me. We're a happy, family. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces. Give it a shot. Post in your discussion forums in the TwitFix section. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast to find out the winners early each week. That's at the Drabblecast. Alrighty, folks, that's our show. Remember, it's produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Jan Dennison. Jan is a human, technically speaking, and dabbles in the fine arts, craft arts, digital arts, and on Fridays, the dark arts. She's most known for having the most lovable dog in the universe, any universe, and finding ways to lose or break just about everything. Check out our website at jennypie.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you to stay out of the barn.
Saturday, Saturday, comes after the world. I don't want this weekend to last. 